Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In January of 2016, President Obama said that he intended to start what he called a cancer moonshot. It made headlines in part because it was inspired by Vice President Joe Biden, who had recently lost his son, Beau, to brain cancer. But there was something unusual about the moonshot. A similarly aggressive stance on cancer had been announced 45 years before, in 1971, when President Nixon said that the disease was too great a threat to Americans and that, quote, the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and that took man to the moon should be turned towards conquering this dread disease. And I hope that in the years ahead that we may look back on this day and this action as being the most significant action taken during this administration. But the National Cancer Act did not help Bo Biden, who was two when the act was signed and 46 when he passed away. Richard Harris has spent 30 years covering science for NPR, and he started to wonder why medical research has struggled to make breakthroughs, not just with cancer, but with all sorts of really tough diseases. He's the author of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So I want to get to that uh, broader question about the problems with a lot of the medical research that's being done today. But first, let's let's take this issue of cancer research and why it has not advanced more. Um, is the reason that we have not cured cancer or made much better progress on it an issue of um, this is really hard? Because we call it a moonshot. But John F. Kennedy said we want to get a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And in fact, we had gotten a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Um, so is it that? Is it that it's really hard? Or are we doing something wrong? I would say both. Uh, There's no question it is a very difficult problem to solve. And it's not just cancer. It's not just one disease, of course. It's many, many different diseases. So so that makes it even more difficult to understand uh, how to move forward. And there has been modest progress. Uh, If you look at mortality rates for cancer, they have been slightly declining. Actually, uh, a lot of the improvement has been driven by things like getting people to stop smoking. So Mm -hmm. we've actually made uh, improvements on the front end of things pretty well, Mm -hmm. and uh, like Colon cancer, for example, is is declined substantially because of uh, colonoscopies, which has helped people avoid developing cancer in the, right. in, to begin with because they find polyps, they remove them before they become cancerous. So, so it's not true that there's been no progress, but when you start looking at metastatic cancer that's spreading throughout the body, that has remained an incredibly difficult problem, and and there are some successes, but 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 not nearly as many as we would like in treating those cancers. So yes, it's a hard problem, but it's also because some of this research has been a little bit off the rails, in my view. Um, One of the things that at least I hear people say every now and again is, 
sort of, you know, where are the big breakthroughs that, you know, we've been told, oh, uh, something for Alzheimer's may be right around the corner, something for ALS right around the corner, something um, to deal with cancer right around the corner. But it doesn't really seem to happen. And I often hear people say those things and think, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, gee, we have a lot accomplished a lot in terms of medical science in the last few decades. Um but then I read your book and thought, maybe there is something to that throwaway line that people, that we are not accomplishing um, as much, or we have not accomplished as much in the last few decades as we might have hoped. Right. And and what I look at in my book are uh, sort of these avoidable errors that scientists make uh, much more commonly than I had expected. Uh, people who've attempted to take a look at how much of the scientific literature, how much that's published in scientific journals is correct, particularly in biomedical uh, science, they say at least half appears to be wrong. And some of this is unavoidable because, you know, scientists are poking away at the edges of knowledge and you're going to make some mistakes and we shouldn't at all blink about that. You know, they're trying hard, they're asking hard questions and the answers don't always come out the way they expect. But I also found many, many instances and many causes for uh, experiments not to be correct because people did something wrong, something that they didn't have to do Mm. at the outset. And that's what the focus of my book is on. I talk about rigor mortis. We're talking about the rigor of science here. And rigor is not dead, clearly. But uh, it could could use a shot in the arm. And that's the conversation I'm trying to stimulate with the book. But you indicate that the last 30 years have not been as impressive as, let's say, the 30 years before. So that 1980 to 2010, not as good medically as 1950 to 1980 in terms of, like, major advances. In terms of big improvements, yes. I mean, part of that is that uh, we conquered some of the really hard and big problems that had dramatic solutions earlier Mm. on. I mean, antibiotics helped. A lot of the drugs that were developed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s really sort of set the stage. And and someone once referred to this, I referred to as, you know, it's harder to be better than the Beatles. Uh, and, and, And to some extent, that's what's going on here is that the improvements were dramatic then. So by comparison, they're going to be less dramatic now. But it is still the case that drugs are getting more and more expensive to develop. And uh, very often, these drugs are are less and less effective. Uh, They may have some minor effects, some minor improvement, particularly anti-cancer drugs. Uh, But on the whole, I was just looking at a report from the National Cancer Institute and the American Cancer Society that came out a couple of weeks ago asking what's happening with mortality trends in cancer. And they uh, just offhandedly at some point in the report said, oh, by the way, you can't really see the effect of all of these new sort of hotshot new generation drugs yet uh, in these mortality rates, because even though there have been some subsets of cancer that have improved, the effects of these targeted therapies have not been dramatic enough to show up overall in the statistics of any particular cancer. So that's a sobering reminder Mm. that, you know, yes, maybe individuals, and there's certainly success stories uh, for an individual with melanoma, maybe a small percentage of them respond dramatically to drugs, and that's fabulous news for for them. But but if you start to say, okay, what about melanomas as a whole or other cancer does... The answer is mm, the effects are wonderful for individuals, but they don't add up to a collective cure or anything approaching it for cancer. You talked about avoidable errors when it comes to doing studies, um, trying to figure out new medicines, new treatments. When do you feel like these avoidable errors started or started ramping up 
Well, I think they've been with us all along. Uh, I don't have great data on this, but there's a lot of suggestive evidence that as it's become more and more competitive and more and more difficult to get NIH grant funding uh, to fund basic biomedical research, uh, the temptation, the, the pressures have been put on people to to make their results seem, you know, dazzling and almost too good to be true. And uh, scientists know that in order to keep their, their research labs going and to get grant funding continuing and to get promotions and so on, that they have to have spectacular results. And guess what? Nobody does work spectacularly all the time. I don't, and I assume you don't either. And <laughs> <laughs> nothing personal, but it's just not I, I, human I think nature, that's a reasonable right? assumption. <laughs> right. So the point is that uh, the expectations on these scientists are basically you can't have an off day or if you do you might lose your funding. And Hmm. that's a a pressure that is just unbelievable. And you can imagine even scientists who are, you know, trying to do their very best are thinking, wow, I'm really working hard against these incentives to make sure that I'm doing stuff correctly. So how does that pressure then manifest itself in terms of uh, the kinds of mistakes you see people making? Well, some of it comes down to... uh, just sort of cutting corners here and there, maybe not doing that last experiment that might actually prove that you're wrong instead of right, which mm-hmm. is the way scientists really should should be thinking about things. But uh, it's better for them to get a paper that has a splashy finding and then turn out down the road that it wasn't quite as dramatic as they thought because uh, the splashy finding helps propel their career forward. And then sort of the refinements down the road don't matter so much. That reminds me of the headline on the front page of the paper that says something. And then they issue a correction on page 13 on the lower Mm -hmm. left-hand side, like the next day. And it's the headline that people remember, even if it kind of got it wrong, like because people didn't really make it to the correction page. Right. And and in this case, uh, we science journalists report these things all the time, you know, a relationship between a particular pesticide and Parkinson's disease, for example, or you know, a new mechanism for ADHD. And it turns out very frequently that, uh, in you know, over a couple of years, science follows up and finds out that these are, in fact, not true. But we don't report the follow-up. But there's not even a correction because we don't even find those papers. You know, there's approaching a million papers a year published in the scientific literature. It's really hard for us even to identify the papers that say, hey, remember that story you reported about a couple years ago? Well, if you feel like it saying it didn't pan out, you could, but we don't even find those papers. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Richard Harris, a science reporter for NPR. He's also author of the book, Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. So um, I've interviewed a ton of scientists. I, I know personally a ton of scientists. A lot of these people got into science because they had somebody they knew died of cancer, Um, you know, because they wanted to solve a huge problem, a really difficult problem. And they always sort of have their eye on that prize, that prize of like helping, you know, thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Mm How could we have possibly gotten to a situation where people are more worried about tenure or where the incentive system is is taken away from the idea of let's just find a cure for this thing because, man, wouldn't that be great? 
Yeah. And I don't think that scientists have given up on those, those high ideals and, and their desires and their drive to, to understand biology and to cure disease. I think that's still very much there. But the problem is, it's not a straight ahead road, right, to get there. And uh, they realize, in order to get there, I have to keep my career going, and I have to start doing these other things. And I think a lot of scientists don't necessarily think what they're doing is detrimental to their science. They don't realize uh, the effects of these little, well, if I just skip one experiment here, I'm, you know, I'm still thinking my, my original answer is correct. Or if I just reanalyze my data this way, that's probably not such a big deal. So people aren't, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, you know, I want to do sloppy science. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just, it just kind of creeps in uh, just because of these other incentives. So the question is, how do you align it so that the people who are thinking about their careers are also with equal vigor able to think about the problems they're trying to solve? So give me a couple examples of situations in which scientists didn't get it right and ways in which this surprised you, maybe even surprised them. You know, I mean, let's assume, I assume, as you said, most scientists are not looking to do bad research. They are looking to make breakthroughs. That would really be the ideal. Um, But give me a couple specific examples in which, you know, you can see how scientists can get it wrong. Right. Well, let me tell you the story of transdifferentiation, which is uh, something I feature in my book. It's a uh, a study that was a couple of studies done around 1999 and 2000, and scientists were studying bone marrow cells, which normally can generate a whole variety of blood cells that circulate in the in the blood. But these scientists did a little tweak, and they thought, ah, I, we can now coax these bone marrow cells into becoming cells that will turn into any kind of cell in the in the human body or many many different types at any rate so brain cells or liver cells or or so on and they realized this is a very powerful technique for generating cells that we can then study and use and maybe even uh, use for medical purposes and everyone got very excited about transdifferentiation and there were according to uh, one estimate there were a couple hundred studies that were done that were people following up on this exciting finding saying yeah we're finding it too and the literature started to fill with these papers. Hmm. Well, a lab at Stanford, uh, Amy Wagers was a a scientist there at the time, and uh, she and her senior scientists in that lab said, you know, no one has really done the careful, let's see if this initial phenomenon is really real. People are sort of picking it up and running with it, but is it really real? And they did a couple of incredibly careful experiments involving mice where they actually combined the circulatory systems of of two mice, sort of stitched them together to watch how these cells would go back and forth between individual mice. It's a wild experiment. That's crazy. They They combined their circulatory systems by stitching them together. I know. It was a very clever and thoughtful experiment. And what they determined was actually these, these blood cells are not transfiguring themselves into all sorts of other blood cells. They were, people were being fooled by a particular uh, fluorescent marker that was in the circulation of these animals. And and, uh, and so the whole thing turned out to be a bust. But it took several years, and, a, and a, by then a huge amount of effort had been expended, and a lot of people had sort of gone to town on this idea that huh. this is a, a very exciting discovery that then once this paper came out, people realized, oops, that was all wrong. Huh. I wonder if uh, fixes have started to be put in place to like address some of these problems, and if you have an example maybe of an action that is being taken to try to uh, make science better. 
Well, the fixes are not entirely in place, but people are thinking about these issues. And the NIH has started to put out some rules and some guidelines to improve some of the easy things to fix. One example is a lot of cells that are used in research labs turn out to be misidentified. People think they're using a breast cancer cell line, and they're actually using a cervical cancer cell line. Well, it turns out there's an inexpensive test you can run to figure out whether your cell is what you think it is. You can pack it up and send it off to a commercial lab for a couple hundred bucks. They'll tell you... Here's the cell line you're actually using. And so the, the NIH has said, if you are a scientist using cells in your laboratory, we now expect you, as effective last year, to validate your cell lines to make sure that they are what you think they are. And so that's an example of a, an easy fix that that problem has been around for, for many, many decades. And the technology has caught up to make it really inexcusable that people are still making those mistakes because the technology is so readily available and not that expensive. Of course, that we were talking a lot about some of these deeper cultural issues, NIH can't wave a magic wand and say, okay, all of a sudden, instead of having a hyper-competitive environment for grants, everyone will have all of their great ideas funded. That's Well, or, in or, fact, <laughs> the NIH, the, the National Institutes of Health, it's, it's getting harder and harder over the decades to actually get a grant from them. So the fact that their pool of money isn't really increasing, I think you could argue, contributes to the fact that there's a hyper-competitive environment. Absolutely. And we've heard some discussion about cutting the NIH budget. And if that happens, you only make this problem worse. So you're not, you know, maybe someone will say, oh, there's so much waste, we can just cut the budget and reduce the waste. But it does, obviously doesn't work that way because mm. all you're doing is you're making the competition for money that much more difficult. Richard Harris covers science for NPR. He's also the author of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. Richard, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Harris told me one other reason, a small furry reason, that we shouldn't always trust new scientific results. We put too much stock in studies on mice. And I think scientists in general and journalists also uh, tend to think, well, gee, if it works in a mouse, you know, fingers crossed it'll work in a human. And most often that actually does not turn out to be the case. We've got a story that we reported a few months ago on why we use mice for medical research and why so often mice are pretty bad human stand-ins. It's a quick listen, about seven minutes long, and you can find it on our website, innovationhub.org. That's where we will also have links to more reporting from Richard Harris. Up next, the invention of human rights and why their expansion always sparks a backlash. I think you can't have the expansion of rights and then just have people sit by and say, oh, that's just great, because for some people, it's deeply threatening. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Here's a quick story about double standards. It centers around Madame du Châtelet, a celebrity of the 18th century. The woman was brilliant. She translated the work of Isaac Newton into French, and while she did it, she made a comment on Newton's work that turned out to be a major contribution to physics. She was scandalous. She had a husband, but she also carried on an affair with Voltaire. 
and she had a curious mix of views when it came to her fellow humans. Not surprisingly, she believed that women were entitled to a lot better education than they were generally provided. She argued passionately for more equal treatment. When it came to her own servants, though, equality was not really on her radar. Madame du Châtelet considered her male valets so lonely that she didn't think twice about undressing in front of them because, according to historian Lynn Hunt, she didn't think it was a proven fact that valets were men. People were used to living in what we would call highly deferential societies, that there were people who were at the top, there were people at the bottom, there were people in the middle. It was better to know your place. It was better not to push too hard. And the aristocracy, Madame de Châtelet was one of them, the aristocracy was sort of naturally superior. But a revolution was coming. Actually, two revolutions. And in one of those revolutions, a man named Thomas Jefferson started a sentence this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Which meant, according to Hunt, who's a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights, that everyone had the capacity to learn and understand. And that raised a very uncomfortable question. Can all people really be educated? Actually, I think we now believe, yes, they can, and that that's incredibly important. But that was not the idea before the 18th century. The idea was that some people should be educated because they were capable, and other people didn't need to be educated because they were peasants, and why did they need to be educated? Hunt says human rights have not always been with us, and it was at the end of the 1700s that the very idea was being dreamed up. That moment in history, actually, has a lot to teach us today, which we're going to get to. But before people started to wonder whether those around them might be more equal than they had previously thought, the prevailing view was that, yes, lower classes did have emotions, but they were, Hunt says, too brutish. They were humans, but they were closer to animals. Their passions had got the better of their reason. They didn't have sensibility in the way that the superior upper classes did. So it was a deeply held view of the world that there was a kind of natural hierarchy. Uh, look, we're all loved Downton Abbey. Yeah. That, that was about that right. was about the early 20th century where what was good about the aristocrats of Downton Abbey was that they were beginning to see in the early 20th century that servants were real people. But you even saw the struggle there. And you also saw in some ways that people were willing to talk about secret things in front of people yes. that they they knew were there, but they kind of thought were not there. They were sort of like wallpaper. You know, they were there and not there at the same time. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that attitude persists in many ways for a very long time. What I found interesting about the 18th century was the beginning of a notion that's, that was going to cast questions, was going to raise questions about that entire vision of the world, that there's a natural hierarchy. I, I think that has largely fallen apart now, but you know, there's still the issue in our society, our supposedly terribly modern society, about whether immigrants who don't know how to read and write, who can't speak English, uh, who seem very different from us, are actually truly equal. So how then do we get to that famous line in the Declaration of Independence that I quoted before, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Like, how did that happen? And how did we get to a point where someone would not only 
put that in writing, but also say it's self-evident, like, obviously, you know, everybody knows that. Well, this is an incredibly interesting question. How could they say that these were self-evident truths? You you know, I think it's important to say that there's not one single answer for that question. There are some long-term developments like the rise of science and new ideas about what human reason can accomplish. There are some medium-term developments about how people live their lives, which I myself have paid a lot of attention to and think are extremely interesting and important. But there are also some very important short-term things that happen. The colonists decide they want to break from Britain. They need to have a rationale. Using the sort of tradition of British liberties is not the greatest rationale for being independent from Britain. And so the short-term thing of what, how can we justify independence and what's going to be the basis of the government that we're going to have forces them to kind of crystallize this whole set of longer-term, medium-term developments into a declaration, something that will galvanize opinion. Hmm. You also make the argument that part of the rise of people thinking, well, I mean, maybe everybody does have human rights around this time is something kind of unexpected, um, which is sort of the rise of the book and not just any kind of book, but that people started reading and loving novels. You want to talk a little bit about like why that was important? You know, I the novel in general, but it's, it becomes especially important in the 18th century because that's the period when it really takes off in terms of publication and in terms of, of public interest. But in general, I think the novel is actually of an extremely fascinating form. It is still the case in the world that we live in that novelists can be subject to attack, to imprisonment, to being mm-hmm. banned. There's something about that form that drives authoritarian figures nuts. Hmm. And this is extremely interesting. In the 18th century, it's not so much about authoritarianism. It's that you have the the increasing publication of novels. They get people incredibly emotionally involved in the lives of characters. That is, with people they are never going to meet, because they're fictional, right. so they're, in <laughs> principle they're never going to meet them. And so they're they're learning that even, you know, an 18-year-old girl, the servant girl Pamela in the novel of that name of 1740, has emotions just like the reader has. Mm-hmm. And the readers include lots of men. It's not a female genre, hmm. which it's a little bit more so a female genre now than, than it was in the 18th century. It was very much a male genre in the, in the 18th century. And people kind of identified mm-hmm. through the novel mm-hmm. with people they were never going to meet. And I think this is a very important process of learning that everybody is psychologically similar. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you have, I'm guessing, not just different genders reading um, novels like Pamela, but also different classes. So you're having aristocracy devour novels about people of lower classes and realizing, you know, like you said, they they love people too. They're, you know, crushed by things too. Their children get sick too and all those kinds of things. Yes, and I, and I think it's really hard to grasp how significant this kind of psychological back and forth could have been in the 18th century. For me, one of the true proofs of the importance of this form is that the abolitionist literature, which only begins to appear towards the very end of the 18th century, almost always takes a kind of novelistic form. Hmm. So, 
freed slaves, when they write their incredibly you know, kind of moving accounts, what do they do? They are essentially kind of novelizing mm-hmm. their life experiences. And people identify, therefore, with this ex-slave in a way that they could never have possibly imagined identifying with slaves in the past. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Lynn Hunt, a distinguished research professor at UCLA and author of the book Inventing Human Rights. So Thomas Jefferson, who I essentially quoted from uh, when I read the Declaration of Independence, is now thought of as someone who did not necessarily uh, treat people equally. And yet he wrote this sentence that clearly everybody should be treated equally. Um, How was it reconcilable to him that he's writing this stuff And yet, obviously, he knew he could look around and he knew he wasn't treating everybody equally around him. Right. Although to give Jefferson his due, because I think he's truly one of the greatest political thinkers that the United States has ever had, to give him his due, he was profoundly agitated on the subject of slavery. Yes, he was a slaveholder. Yes, he maintained his slaves. Yes, he had relationships with at least one of his female slaves, Sally Hemings. We know all of that now. But he, at the same time, was agonized about this. He lived in a slaveholding society. He could not imagine overturning it. He did, however, totally support the abolition of the slave trade in 1806-1807, which the British inaugurated and the United States followed. And he did argue in favor of abolishing the slave trade on the grounds of, of basically of human rights, that it's really not right to enslave people. Right. So. Even the slaveholder that was Thomas Jefferson was troubled by this. And and that's one of the things I think is so fascinating about the 18th century. People make these statements like the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in France about uh, inalienable rights and the equality of all men. They don't really understand what the repercussions will be of making those clear declarations. But one of the huge consequences of these declarations is that it leads immediately to a huge amount of discussion, both in the United States and in France, about, well, who exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. What about women? Mm-hmm. How can we have slavery? Uh, what about servants who never have the right to vote in most places until the end of the 19th century? What about people who don't have property who are excluded from voting in most countries also well into the 19th century. So they have no idea that just saying all men are created equal and they all have rights is going to lead to a huge amount of debate and discussion that no one saw coming. Hmm. They weren't having that debate before. They have the debate after these declarations. Do you think we've come a long way in terms of human rights, or do you think people in the future are going to look back at us and think... Boy, you know, much as we look at Jefferson and think, boy, they sure had a long way to go. I think both things are true. I think Mm -hmm. we have come a long way. Mm -hmm. I think that, again, once you advance rights, once a group gets rights who didn't have rights before, when you look back on it, you're like, how could this be? I mean, look, I'm a historian. I read a lot of history books. I, of course, was extremely interested in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Even now, when I read about the way African-Americans were treated as late as 
20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I just, it, I, I'm kind of speechless. Mm-hmm. I lived through that period. Mm-hmm. I was in college during the 1960s and the civil rights marches. We were all incredibly upset about it. In retrospect, that, that we were right to be upset, but it, you, the upsetness only occurs at certain times and in certain places. It doesn't happen just because it's unjust. I, I interviewed a, a former history professor at Princeton, um, Nancy Malkiel, several yes. months ago, and she's written a yes. big book about this, this. This wonderful book, yes, yes, about coeducation, right. um, as particularly I think in the Ivy Leagues, but but in other uh, other places too. And um, the story she would tell from I think she started in the fall of '68 or '69 as a professor, like a very young professor at Princeton, and the story she would tell about what people would say to other people, what professors would say to female students was shocking. I mean, and this happened in her lifetime. She's not talking about like ancient history or something. I know. I know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of the one of the problems, of course, with those of us who are, are getting older is that we went through this period in the 60s of enormous changes and enormous discussion and debate and upheaval, et cetera. And we lived through certain kinds of changes, which you know, frankly, if we when we look back on them now, we're like, real. I mean, could this have really been true? I mean, especially when, when one thinks about, for example, the civil rights era, that you know people were being hosed down and dogs set upon them and beaten and even assassinated because they said African Americans should have the right to participate fully in our society. You're you kind of like, truly, could this be the case? Mm-hmm. But it was, mm-hmm. it was, and it was, of course, also the situation. For women, it's this is this is why what what you said was so true. We look back and we say, "How could this be?" And yet we also have our struggles, which will come, and which people thirty years from now will say, "How could that be?" Hmm. We tend to view human rights as mostly sort of a steady upward trajectory. Do you think, in general, that's right? My view is that it is very much two steps forward, one step back. Hmm. I mean, I th- I think right now, to, in my view, we're living in a time in which in the United States, some fairly large portion of the population is has been upset for a very long time about the kinds of changes that have taken place. And this is their moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they'll actually be able to roll back the the rights that have been gained. Uh, at least I, I hope that's the case. But I think you can't have the expansion of rights and then just have people sit by and say, oh, that's just great. Because right. for some people, it's deeply threatening to change the social order of the South, for example, which is also in some ways the social order of the whole country in terms of race and African-Americans, has it has been a staggeringly difficult struggle. And, and there have been gains. And when there are gains, there are people who are very unhappy about that. Hmm. Lynn Hunt is a distinguished research professor at UCLA. She's also the author of Inventing Human Rights, A History. Lynn, thank you so much for this great conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I mentioned an interview I did with Nancy Malkiel about colleges that went co-ed in the 60s and 70s, a very bumpy transition, and it included some stories that will knock your socks off. We have got that interview, if you want to hear it, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. 
From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Sometimes the most significant discoveries from an experiment are things you could have never anticipated. And sometimes, like in the case of Vincent Felitti, even the experiment itself kind of creeps up on you. Felitti is a physician in San Diego. He's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and founder of the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. About 25 years ago, he was working in a medical program helping people combat obesity. But the program had lots of dropouts. And the dropouts were not people who couldn't lose weight. They were people who were doing great. They were making real progress towards their goals. They were the people who you would have thought would have been excited and would have stayed in the program. But that did not happen. And when these very successful people dropped out, they gained the weight back very, very fast. Felitti couldn't figure out what was going on, so he started asking people questions about their pasts. Were they skinny kids? Were they overweight kids? Did their weight change suddenly at some point? And he realized that a lot of people had not become heavy slowly over time. They had gained weight all at once. Now, a quick warning here. There will be a little talk threaded through this story about sexual abuse. And I remember vividly one woman uh, we had worked up to uh, in the 20s in her life, and she told me that at 23 she was raped and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds, whereupon she looked down at the carpet and muttered to herself, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Felitti was struck. And soon he began asking lots more participants in the program if they had experienced rape or abuse. And was floored by the fact that it seemed every other patient in the program that I was asking was acknowledging a history of childhood sexual abuse. And initially I had great difficulty accepting that, you know, I mean, it can't be. You know, I must be doing something wrong. I mean, people would know if this were true. And uh, 186 patients later, it turned out not to be every other patient, but 55%. And the more patients that he and his colleagues asked about this, the more their findings. And remember, this was an experiment they didn't even know they were doing. The more their findings were consistent. Felitti spoke about their work at an obesity conference in 1990, and it didn't go well. Some guy gets up and says, you really need to understand, Dr. Felitti, that people who are more familiar with these matters, like obviously they, recognize that these statements by patients are basically fabrications to provide a cover explanation for failed lives. And I remember standing in front of that very large audience thinking to myself, oh yeah, right, people falsely claim incest histories for social aggrandizement. And I remember thinking, you know, do I tell this wretch what I think of him and probably start a riot here or, or let it go? I, I decided to let it go. But he still cared about the research and he wanted to build on it. He also made a contact at that meeting that would change his life. The doctor who sat next to him at dinner was from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, part of the federal government. He told Felitti that his findings could be critically important for the country if they were proven true. There were two basic questions. One, how common are these in a general population? And two, how do they play out over time? 
So Felitti and his colleagues started surveying patients to ask about a set of adverse childhood experiences, abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, major neglect, either emotional or physical, and a few other indicators of possible dysfunction, growing up without both biological parents, growing up in a household with an alcoholic, a drug user, someone who's being abused, someone who's chronically depressed or otherwise mentally ill, and growing up with a parent who's in prison. Then this study that had accidentally come into being because of a few stories that shocked a few doctors started yielding a rather amazing large-scale finding. On average, people who scored one or more adverse childhood experiences grew up to become a lot sicker than those who hadn't. Some of that sickness manifested in a way that you might expect. Depression, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, higher drug and alcohol abuse. But it went way beyond that. Here are some of the other problems they saw more of. Heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, diabetes, fractures, cancer, a number of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, scleroderma, etc. And a major effect on premature death. We found that a person who had experienced any of those six categories uh, in their childhood or adolescence had a uh, shortening of life expectancy of 19.7 years, basically 20-year life shortening. It was just about 20 years ago now that Felitti began publishing those results. And lots of findings on ACE scores, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, have appeared since then. Some lawmakers have taken note. They've passed legislation to gather this sort of information and make it available to public services trying to help kids. But Felitti says that the medical community just has not known what to do with ACE scores. They might be too hot to touch, kind of too difficult to tackle, but they're there. And Felitti thinks that both doctors and the public have to confront them. I think the most important thing that could happen with it would be to make a transformative change in primary care medical practice so that issues of causality were routinely sought. I wonder, though, if people are scared both on the front of asking people about things that they consider very private and personal, but also on the front of, I mean, you've taken in some ways sort of these very sensitive topics and turn them into numbers. I wonder if people think, oh, gosh, you know, to reduce abuse to a number that we don't want to like we don't want to go near that. I think the avoidance of this is out of self-concern. I don't know how to talk with people about stuff like that, etc., that kind of thing. So probably the most important thing would be to get across the idea by illustration, by video illustration, of what this looks like in the exam room. And what the examiners worked out was this approach. I see on the questionnaire that. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And they listened. I see on the questionnaire that you were the one who discovered your father's body when he hanged himself. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? I see on the questionnaire that you were sexually molested as a kid. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And we listened, period, period. And then 
this mathematician from UCSD comes by and shows in a 130,000 person sample that that somehow triggers a 35% reduction in doctor office visits and an 11% reduction in ER visits the next year compared to the year before for that same group. So hearing this, many people say to me, you know, how do you do that? You, you sent everyone to therapy, right? No, we sent almost no one to therapy. Well, how'd you do that? And then I came to see that the piece that we had overlooked recognizing was implicitly accepting that it was asking not face-to-face -face initially. That's too difficult. And then following that up in the exam room, I see on the questionnaire that, can you tell me how and listening and implicitly accepting. Yeah, people were people were opening up to yeah. to their doctors. Yeah. Um, so when you think about trying to help people deal with some of these experiences, there must be some patients who have adverse childhood experiences, but maybe somehow avoid getting as sick as other people with many of the same experiences. Have you at all been able to isolate or think about what sort of, is there a resilience factor somewhere that helps some people and doesn't help others? Absolutely. The essence of resilience centers on the deeply held recollection and belief that at least once there was someone in one's life who really cared about you, to whom you really mattered. And that could be a teacher. It could be. A, could it be a teacher? Could it be a coach? Teacher, or, a policeman, yeah. a coach. Mm. A a absolutely. Resilience is a very popular subject because it is a good step towards avoidance. Well, I mean, the kid's only two. He's not going to remember this. Kids are resilient. He's going to, you know, he's going to get over this. One of the major researchers in resilience in the United States is a woman named Emmy Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R. On, I believe it's the bottom of page 67 of her book, she makes the <laughs> memorable statement that amongst the most resilient people they had studied, they were unexpectedly surprised to discover the high rate of biomedical disease in that group. These are resilient people, but they've still got serious diseases. Unexpectedly high huh. biomedical disease. When we look at resilience, we look at income, social status, academic success, etc. We do not look at biomedical disease as a marker of resilience or lack thereof. I see. So they might have become a successful lawyer, but that didn't mean that they were able to fend off potentially medical implications of these childhood experiences they had. A absolutely. And mm -hmm. the best example of that that I can think of is an autobiography written by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Bullock. She was extensively molested by her father as a little girl. In addition, he brought her into saloons and sold her to strangers for sex at nighttime. Mm. Somehow she does not commit suicide. She does not become a mass murderer. She becomes a United States federal judge. Wow. I mean, that's a big deal. Isn't it wonderful how this woman is so resilient? Mm. 
The rest of the story, the part that's never looked at, is she has had five different kinds of cancer. Not five relapses, five different kinds of cancer. In 50 years, I have never met a patient with five different kinds of mm. cancer before her. In addition, she has lupus. In addition, she has multiple sclerosis. So the question ultimately comes up, how does this happen? Right. I mean, how the hell do you go from what happens to a little kid, you know, to having cancer 50 years later? Well, our initial thought was, well, you know, I mean, you smoke three packs a day to feel better, of course. And that's true, except that Judge Bullock never smoked. Mm -hmm. The question comes, well, how does one deal with this? The magnitude of the problem is such that it will never meaningfully be dealt with on a person-by-person -person basis after the fact. If anything is going to be done meaningfully, hmm. it's going to have to be done by primary prevention, by figuring out how to prevent this in the first place. No one knows how to do that yet, but it's the right question to focus on. And my best guess currently would be that, that would involve figuring out how to enable tens of millions of people in this country to become more capable parents, mm. to become more supportive parents. Dr. Vincent Felitti is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the founder of the Department of Preventive Medicine for Kaiser Permanente. Thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome. We've got more on our website about research into adverse childhood experiences and what we know about their effect on health. Plus, we've got info on how the studies are being put to use. That's at innovationhub.org. Vincent Felitti, by the way, thinks that one of the best ways to reach large numbers of parents might be to develop a kind of soap opera that would highlight different sorts of situations that you confront when you're raising a kid and then showcase what supportive parenting looks like. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. If you missed a part of today's show, or if you want to hear any of our segments when you're away from your radio this summer, you can grab our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com.